Welcome, everyone. I'm Tim Jamal, CEO of NAOP SoCal. I'm pleased to welcome everyone to our podcast series where we interview those who shape and drive commercial real estate in Southern California. NAOP SoCal is the premier association representing commercial real estate in Los Angeles and Orange counties. More than 1,000 real estate professionals and 500 of the top commercial real estate firms in Southern California are part of the powerful NAOP SoCal chapter network. NAOP SoCal provides unique networking, top-notch education, and public policy advocacy for our members and sponsors. We are pleased, very pleased, to welcome to the podcast today California State Senator Bob Hertzberg. Senator Hertzberg was first elected to the California State Assembly in 1996. He went on to serve as the 64th Speaker of the California State Assembly, unanimously elected by both parties in 2000 and 2001. And I might say that's quite a feat, Senator, and we'll get more into that later. Um, after his tenure as Speaker, Senator Hertzberg worked in the private sector as a clean energy entrepreneur. And in 2014, he returned to state government when he was again elected to represent the San Fernando Valley in the California State Senate. Senator's bio and body of work is quite extensive, and we will reserve the balance of the podcast to dive deeper into his long list of accomplishments. Senator, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Hopefully I can uh, provide some enlightening information to the folks that want to listen. Absolutely. Well, let's jump right in. And because we have an audience, you know, of commercial real estate and uh, may not know a lot about you. So tell us a little bit about your family background, history and, and where you grew up. Well, the most important thing that they need to know is I'm a finance guy and a dirt guy. I mean, I, I, you know, there's one thing, I guess, if you're in this business, you want to know I'm a lawyer for 42 years and I wrote a book for the University of California called California List Pendants Practice. So anybody who's been involved in a real estate transaction has had a finance deal that's gotten screwed up by a list pendants. I'm the only son of a gun who was crazy enough to, uh, to actually do that. Although my second edition of that book was co-written by, uh, uh, Tom Umberg, who is a good friend of mine, he's a senator now, and he's a chair of the Judiciary Committee, his law partner, Dean Zipser. So, but no, in a nutshell, just pretty simple. I mean, I, I'm not for all the, the glory of all this stuff. The reality is, what do you do? And, you know, I'm a closer. What do you do? Do you deliver or not? You make stuff happen and, and, and the like. But I, I, I've been, a, my dad was a lawyer, uh, um, you know, and and constitutional lawyer and was a warrior, was a guy who, when you went to court and, and he was your lawyer, and the judge did something that guy didn't like. He'd scream in like a son of a gun at the judge and get thrown in jail. And the client would be happy because you fight like a son of a gun. And I got that fight in me. He also never accepted the status quo. And so when women couldn't be bartenders in 1954 or people in the, who, who were Chinese who wanted to practice acupuncture were thrown in jail or Native Americans couldn't uh, do gaming on their on their reservations. He took it to the United States Supreme Court. I wrote the brief United States Supreme Court in 1982 with him and was part of his firm, uh, but um, and, and ran the Barona Casino for a year uh, back in 84, I think it was. I worked for, done a lot of real estate deals, done a lot of hotel deals, worked with Jess Unruh in the finance world a lot, worked with Ora Carrington and a bunch of other firms. So, you know, it's, it's the best thing about me is that, you know, I paid my dues, man. I've been, I started out as a driver for a guy named Merv Dimely in 1973 and 74, running for lieutenant governor. We drove all 58 counties. I learned all the details. I kept my mouth shut. 
and just kept learning and learning and working and working. And after 48 years, I finally feel like I'm starting to get a little somewhere down the road, but I still got a lot more to learn. So old school, hard worker, a deal guy, close the deal. Doesn't matter how much, you know, today we got a bunch of politicians that are too many politicians that are Twitter politicians that try to get followers and don't try to close deals. And you got to make stuff happen and make progress. And that's my philosophy. And that's what I do. So old, old school. Well, when, when you were, when you were growing up, did you grow up in, in Southern California? Born in Los Angeles. Um, but my, there's five boys in my family. My oldest brother had cerebral palsy and they wouldn't let him be, a, he wanted to go to regular school and they wouldn't let him go to regular schools here in LA because we didn't have special ed back in those days. So we moved to Palm Springs where we had a house. Andy was a water boy on the football team, went to high school in Palm Springs, came back to L.A. But I've been, uh, you know, born here in downtown at Temple Hospital that just got taken down to build an apartment building. And, uh, you know, know every nook and cranny of this place. Uh, you know, in politics, I started many, many, many years ago. Merv Dimely, African-American, actually, you know, black uh, elected official who was from Trinidad and I got to work in South LA for many years and then went to the East side and worked in the East side for many years, helping everybody, never for money, chairing Javier Becerra's campaign for assembly in Congress with Louis Valenzuela, my real estate buddy. We've done a ton of real estate deals together. It was a CB Richard Ellis broker a long some time ago and um, did a ton of campaigns in the East side and then ran in, and won in the Valley many, many years later. So Senator, um, what were your aspirations when you were growing up? I mean, you you know, I clearly became kind of a street fighter. I see that. But are, are you you doing now what you thought you'd be doing? I don't know. You know, it's hard to remember that far back. My dad was a lawyer. None of my brothers are lawyers. One's an inventor. Another one worked in government. You know, uh, another one's in technology. But I always wanted to be a lawyer since a kid. And, you know, I kind of evolved. I, I, I was always interested in politics, never anticipated at the time I'd ever be elected official. You know, my my approach to this process, I'm much more the conciliary. I, I like doing the deals and quietly get it done. When Villaraigosa was was the Antonio became mayor, he was speaker, I was his number two. And I was chair of rules committee. And I would come in, make the deals and hand it to him. And he would do the press conference. And I was always happy doing that, you know. I was always happy. I like I like that, and I don't I'm not really a press guy. If anybody's ever followed me, or I, you don't see me doing damn too many damn press conferences, and, and you know I, I don't make a judgment on that because it's important to sell your message. You know, right. I'm not suggesting it's not important. I mean, you need to have the skills to make the deal, but you also need to sell the message. And I'm I'm bad at selling the message. I'm good at closing the deals, and that's what I like doing. So I I didn't really anticipate being elected office. I'd worked in I'd worked on 178 political campaigns for free before I decided to run and I just get so damn frustrated because so many people who I really like, you know, they get elected because and wear out a dozen pairs of shoe leather to get elected. And then they get in and they don't really understand what they're about. They haven't done their homework. They haven't have a strategic plan. They don't really understand how to define success and what they're trying to do. And then it becomes the, 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 the one of the great challenges, not with everybody, with a lot of people, it's all about getting reelected. And that to me doesn't solve the problem. It may keep you elected, but it sure to hell don't solve the problem in, turn, in my judgment and in, 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 in providing the necessary leadership of making government work and solving problems and thinking forward, you know? Yeah, well, you, 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 in some ways you're ahead of your time and you're, you're still ahead of your time <laughs> given what's how politics, the direction it's gone in, in the last couple decades really. And, but I want to, I want to still stay back just for a second here 
And I think you touched on it just now. Why did you jump into politics? What did you have the elected bug? You felt like you could make a difference and you didn't like the direction of, you know, decision makers or why did you jump in? Well, it's kind of an evolution of things. You know, it started as a lawyer. You know, my dad was a, t- as I said, was a tough old bird. His attitude when I, when I said, you're going to be a lawyer, he says, well, you're going to, you're going to be a trial lawyer. You're going to be a scrivener. I didn't know what a scrivener meant. <laughs> I'm sure it had to do with some sniffling, sniveling, whatever. So of course I want to be a trial lawyer. And you know, everybody has been, in, who's listening to this podcast has been involved in litigation and it's BS. You spend a ton of money. You get, you end up, if you, you know, you don't really ever really win. It, it's a pain in the butt, kills your productivity. It's horrible. And so I'd go out and kill my, kill myself to win a case. And the next week, the client did the exact same thing all over again. So I moved from that to saying, okay, how do I solve your problem? And I kind of started, like I did a lot of hotel deals. And, and every time there's, you know, 20 boxes of crap paperwork that comes in those things. And I would, I would say, look, if you want me to handle your deal, I'm going to put a management memo together that you have to use, an imagine notebook actually, to be able to make sure we don't have a problem. Because if all of a sudden there's a problem two or three years down the line, you go out and hire a big law firm, they, they, they you know, go through all the paperwork and find out 10 reasons why you violated some minutia, and then they litigate, and it's crazy. You need, and so I moved from kind of a litigation to preventative law, and then more into transactions. And, and I married that with government, and I, I, again, I saw so many people who I'd sit down with a lot of my friends in politics, and I'd say, okay, how do we define success? What's your strategy? What's your exit memo? Tell me what, okay, now you're in office for eight or 12 years. Tell me what you've delivered. Tell me how to get to goal. And I found it very frustrating. And then ultimately, I said, screw it. I'm going to do it myself. And when I got into government, I put together the what ultimately became for a while the Robert M. Hertzberg Capital Institute, where everybody had to be trained. Democrats and Republicans sat next to each other. She so didn't demonize each other. And then I required over 5,000 staffers got went through training courses because I don't care if you're a lawyer, or if you're in the finance world, if you're a real estate person, we all have education because the world keeps changing. Not a single person on this listening to this podcast, all 48 million of them, uh, did, did, <laughs> not, did not have to continue education. So it's not about term limits. It's about just staying on your toes. And, and that's kind of what motivated me to this deal and, and in the beginning. And that's what I did when I was speaker. I really worked hard to develop the institution to figure out, you know, how to align interests and define success. And those are, always have been my guideposts. I'm amazed. I know it's on your bio and I'm, I know that the folks in the Capitol and the building, that the, the term you guys use up there, everyone knows this, but, you know, you were unanimously elected twice as speaker, I believe in 2000, 2001. And I, I just think it's to pause for a minute to really reflect on that and because I don't think it could happen. I don't think it could happen again today. Um, maybe it could, but how, how how did it happen? And and will we ever get back to that period? We, 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 Washington is different than Sacramento. Now we just do a perfunctory thing, but it was the first time in like 50 years it happened. And here's the reason why. It's really simple. I believe in the Constitution. The Constitution gives a right to people to get represented. Now, there's a lot of parts of the state that would never elect me or give me three votes, some Jewish guy, not a chance, not happening. And um, But these folks have a right to be represented. So, you know, it's like going to a court case or making a deal or whatever it may be. I've got my opinion, but I have to respect theirs. So I worked my heart out to listen to the other side. I always gave them. I never punked them. I gave him good offices. I never did the small ball stuff and worked a relationship. The guy who was for part of the time who made those votes was a guy named Scotty Baugh, 
who uh, came, went on to become the chair of the Republican Party after in Orange County after he left. And to this day, he is one of my best friends, and I love him to death. I don't agree with the damn thing he says. I think he's wrong on everything. But he's a beautiful guy, and he's an honest guy, and he's a straightforward guy. And he will never knife you, and we have honest conversations. And when there were problems and I made a mistake, I walked into his Republican caucus and said, guys, don't blame your person. Blame me. I screwed that up. You know, and I just, you just do be, be straight with people, be honest with them, respect them, you know, and, and don't small ball them, man. It's stupid. It's stupid at every level. It's stupid because it, it doesn't respect who are, we talk about tolerance. We talk about diversity. We talk about that stuff. Well, diversity and tolerance is stupid opinions as well. And the idea to listen and maybe that you can learn something from them. And if not, at least show them the respect that they deserve because they got elected. That's how I did it. Yeah, I, I, well, you, you talked about clickbait and social media. I remember when I, I used to work in Washington, D.C. for many years, and I had a good friend who worked with uh, Senator Alan Simpson, a Republican from Wyoming, and they used to do this point-counterpoint um, right. radio cast with Ted Kennedy. I and remember, he, yeah. You remember those? So, He's a brilliant guy. You know, one, my, he was a elementary school friend of mine. We grew up together, and he said, you know, Tim – you know, they, they, they duke it out on the air and afterwards they go to the bar and have some beers together. And, um, and I tell you something that's funny because if you look in my office, there's a picture of me and Scott Baugh having a bar, having a beer at a bar after that vote. And we both have it in our respective offices. If you go to my majority leader's office in Sacramento, you'll see that picture. And, and, you know, now, even to this day, I'm majority leader of the Senate. There is every single time before we go to the floor, leadership, I meet with the leadership on the other side. What do you got? What's the problems? What do you need? And avoid all the BS. It's amateur hour to play that game. People are pissed off. They're tired. Government doesn't get its job done. Let them advocate what they want. That's fine. They're fair. It's entitled to it. But every single time we meet and every single time we coordinate and to avoid the the heartache. Washington is a disaster when it comes to that issue. But in Sacramento, we're pretty good at it. Well, take me back to 2002. So you leave politics. Right. Um, you're, you're out of the assembly. And you go into the private sector. And you start working, I think, in the clean energy, clean energy sphere. What, what, why did, what inspired you to do that? And tell, what kind of work did you do? Well, I'll take a couple of things. So I did a couple of things. I went to work at Mayor Brown which is a big law firm out of Chicago. And my rabbi there was Mickey Canner, who most people probably on this call know. He was the former chair of Bill Clinton's campaign. And he, he um, and then went on to become trade rep and secretary of commerce, you know, and I, so I became a partner in a big law firm and made a lot of money at that. But, but the way I worked is, I, I, again, old school. I, I don't like the law firms where you, where you bill hours. I made a deal. We had a bunch of carve outs and Mayor Brown was great to work with. This is a place where Bill Daly had worked and, a whole bunch of people from Chicago had worked and they understood politics. And I said, look, I charge flat fees. I generally don't work with the lawyers and I charge flat fees. I Can you introduce problem. me to some of those firms now? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I fixed your damn problem. Well, Mickey Cannon went on to the board with uh, of C.B. Richard Ellis. He was on the board and, and he was on the board of my solar company. But part of what I wanted to do is I, 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 I just am not too... I don't know what the word is, but uh, interested and curious, I guess, in too many things. And I've always, when I've been in, as a lawyer, I've been a lawyer 42 years, almost 43 years now. And when I'm a lawyer, I always mix my world with public policy slash politics, business, and the law. 
I think that when you're a business person, you understand how to take risks and you'll make a much better lawyer because you understand what it's to be on the other side of the trade. And it's really important. So I, what I did was I went to work almost, I think, I don't think I had any, I don't remember ever having a client in the 12 years I was there that I didn't bill by flat fees. And, you know, it's like, and I almost dealt with the CEOs and said, hey, man, here's what you want. I'll get it done. If I don't get it done, get rid of me. But I'm not going to, you know, worry about every time you pick up the phone, uh, you're going to get a bill and stuff like that. I just felt it was, we're in aligning interests with the client. I want to bleed for them. They got to bleed for me. It's real simple. That's the way it works. So I started. I can tell you it doesn't work that way most of the time nowadays. I know, I know, I know, I know. (laughs) Believe me, I'm keenly aware of that. So, but I run by my own shop and my own rules. And Mayor Brown was was very willing to work with me and they were great. And I, you know, for a long time, my utilization was 200 and some percent. And sometimes I wasn't there for weeks on end, but it didn't matter. I got the job done and delivered. So, Basically, you know, I've been in business forever. I wrote my first, did my first solar company in 84, which was a disaster. I came out of government and was involved with the solar company in South LA that we took public in the markets in the UK. And then I formed another solar company, wind company, uh, electric car company, all this stuff in Europe. So I was basically a partner in the firm and traveled the world in an extraordinary way. Uh, You know, it was just an unbelievable experience for all those years and then came back into government in 2014. So it was a combination. And what got me into it, quite frankly, is I was Speaker of the House during the energy crisis. And, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric about green energy and all that crap. But the reality was the law was written in a way that was very difficult to transition. And so uh, um, we we, uh, we were able to, uh, so I got my attention and I worked on renewables and all the various aspects of renewables because I got sick and tired of all the politicians talking about all their policies. And I'd go to them all the time and say, well, tell me how many pounds of... Uh, of carbon you've been reducing the atmosphere this week. How, what did you do? What did you get done? You know, and we had a lot of press conferences and a lot of crap in government, but there really wasn't much happening for many years. Now there is, but at the time there wasn't. And so I was, I went to dog it. And one of the reasons I came back among many was to do the hard work in the renewable space past just the platitudes of, oh, I got a hundred percent of this and a hundred percent of that. Doesn't matter anymore. We've got to figure out how the economic model works, how the incentives are aligned, how, how, what what role government makes. It's intelligent and what's stupid. I there was an article that the Economist wrote on me. It says I'm the green contrarian because I didn't believe in a lot of these subsidies. Every banker I went to with the subsidy program, they said, "Great, we don't count that in your balance sheet. We don't count that in your business model. Get a life. You know, it might help you stay alive for a while, but we don't really look at it as real money because we don't know if it's real." So I, I developed a whole approach, which all of which has helped me tremendously um, in being a better thinker about about how to fix public policy in a, in a long-term way and, and make it work rather than just play the angles. So is that why, I mean, look, you, you, you had reached the, I think, a pinnacle to become speaker twice. You left politics, go into the private sector, and then you go back to politics. Um, I, I, I find that somewhat surprising. And it was the reason that you just wanted, you just like public policy and you wanted to fix some of the, or a lot of the problems that have been, have been, you know, not been taken care of. Well, I'll tell you this, you know, it's, I'm kind of a number, a couple of minds at one level. I look at it and says, 
I had to have a hole in my head. For the Yiddish speakers, it's a lochenkop. You got to have a hole in your head. It's crazy. I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? It's tough, and it's gotten so much worse because the Twitter and all the other stuff that's out there. It's just yep. painful. Because I, I, I'm a deal guy. People may not like it. Whatever. We all. The big thing you got to know in life is who you are and go for it. But I think that part of it was money wasn't my god. You know what I mean? In terms of life, I talked to all these lawyers and law firms, and they're man, they're making money, and they got golden handcuffs. So I see these other people, my friends, and the, you know, C-suites and stuff. You know, I'm I'm shooting for the moon. I'm doing stuff that's crazy. I want to live a life that's large and doing great stuff. And and I didn't want to be in the boring drudges of the other stuff. So, you know, I, I as I traveled the world, I saw so many ideas and learned so many things. I. The Guardian magazine uh, put together this article called 50 People to Save the Planet. I never talked to him once, and not one person on the judging panel was an American, and they only listed four people, Al Gore, uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, me, and one other person, as one of the 50 people to save the planet. I won the World Bank Award for Project in Rwanda. Crazy stuff that just wow. gives you meaning in your life. You know, I, Wall Street Journal for my solar company, uh, uh, the the uh, uh, innovation innovation company uh, innovation of the year innovator of the year for two thousand and five stuff that matters you, you know what I mean and stuff that gives meaning to your life so I looked at politics I know where all the bodies are buried I buried a lot of them and um, you know I figured what what am I going to do I'm going to just go and make more dough who cares it's like now what we're going to put in the coffin with me so I've been working on gigantic stuff and the guy that motivated me quite frankly to get back into this thing is a guy named Nicholas Berguin, the homeless billionaire guy. Uh, uh, and, you know, we've been, we worked together with the Think Long Committee, with George Schultz, with Condi Rice, with, with Gray Davis, with Chief Justice Ron George, with Eric Schmidt, with, with uh, a whole bunch of people looking at how to fix California. And I became the recon guy necessary to go in and fix it. So we worked with Schnitzel, Schwartz and Schnitzel, the governor, on creating a rainy day fund. We fixed redistricting, which we don't have gerrymandering now. We reduced 50% plus one on the budget, not for one part or the other, but just to not have this horrible branding problem for California when the budget gets you know delayed and delayed. looks like we don't know what we're doing. Worked on the architectural tectonic levels of power to fix stuff, which is what I'm still doing now. I just did the privacy thing on the ballot. Uh, um, you know, I just did the stuff with the with the, uh, uh, the realtors on the ballot involving portability and firefighters. I'm about to put on a gigantic thing for home ownership that I'm working on with Ora Carrington and a bunch of others on on down payments assistance for home ownership to move away from the model of renters to the model of home ownership. They're really thinking it through, and so you know. Go big or go home, man. That's my philosophy. And so it gives me the imprimatur as being somebody who's been around a long time, majority leader of the Senate, to run the inside-outside deals and to work on the really big stuff. And, you know, it's, it's it, you know, you won't see my name on much because I don't do the press stuff. And But to me, that's one of the greatest assets you have. Let everybody else get the credit and just have the focus to get the damn thing done. And that's what people are pissed about. Stop the noise and make stuff happen. And I'm I'm of that camp. Yeah, well, I don't think you're going to see people stop on social media. It's even, um, I mean, the clickbait is is out of control. Um, oh. and, and you see, I mean, you obviously see it every day, uh, or try yeah, not to see it, it or maybe the, you don't okay. see it. <laughs> oh, I, I don't watch it, but I, I'm subject to it. There's protests that had at my house and other stuff that's going on. I mean, you, you just, it's, it's crazy. You can't even 
uh, it's so bad that the fact that you want to entertain other people's points of view or to think about stuff or to meet with people, you're demonized. Well, I'm sorry. I don't buy that. And I'm not never going to buy it. Get a life. <laughs> How the heck did the Guardian pluck you out? And I'm not saying, I mean, obviously it, 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 it well deserved. But how did how did they how did they pluck you out and put you into the top fifty people to save the planet? I don't know. I never asked them, but I, I'm <laughs> guessing. I'm guessing is, you know, I got out of government and, and, and I went over to. I mean, after I did the company and, and and I went over to Europe, I traveled the planet. I mean, I was in Sri Lanka with the solar stuff. I was in Rwanda, Africa. I was in Europe. We did this great. We 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 built. I just was came back from Portugal yesterday. And we, we were the first place in the world where we made wind. We, we use wind power to make solar. We reduced our solar footprint from the average solar footprint from eight years to, to four months. Uh, I, I worked on the electric car company in London when we used congestion pricing and, and parking charges to basically supplement the cost of the car. So I was around a lot. I, I did a zillion interviews around the world because at the time there was really an interest in green stuff. And um, they must have picked up on it because they never called me. But I, I was I was doing stuff in, in Shenzhen, China and South. I was doing stuff all over the planet. And I did a ton of interviews over time on, on Bloomberg and on BBC and on, uh, in, you know, all kinds of, uh, of international stuff. And because I was an American, because I was friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger, it got a little bit of attention. And so um, I think that's where they must have picked it up out of the papers and stuff. But I. I, literally, a friend called me and says, you won't believe this. And I go, what are you talking about? Because I never talked to anybody. And, yeah. and the thing that I loved the best was that I looked at the panel of judges. There wasn't one single American. Really? And I was, what now? And the panel, a panel of Africa and China and India and, you know, Europe and everything. There wasn't one American. Now, Al Gore was pretty obvious. I think Leonardo DiCaprio was pretty obvious. The third one was Terry Tamanen, who was Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, EPA secretary. And I was mm-hmm. the fourth one, the least obvious. But hey, it is what it is. I'll take it. That's awesome. Well, we talked before we went on air about, you know, NAP SoCal and who we represent in commercial real estate. Um, you know, we have those who are in office, industrial, mixed use, uh, real uh, retail, multifamily. Uh, we have about a thousand members across SoCal and LA and Orange County, 7,000 firms, 130,000 jobs, 6 billion in salaries and wages are connected to commercial real estate, supply chain, infrastructure projects, property tax revenues, a lot of benefits come with the the industry and the contributions that are making in Southern California. But yet the relationship with the legislator, with the legislature and legislators, more often than not seems to be adversarial or acrimonious why is that i think it's it it's partly i mean i think it's just generally a bigger business issue when you're out making a living you you just want to go make a living and get your stuff done in government you know we tend to get focused on as opposed to the big picture think and a strategic approach on whatever the issue is before us at the time and whatever the loudest loudest noisemaker is or get you on the front page of the paper or whatever. Um, I think that, that, um, you know, part of it is a residue of of prop 13 on, on, on split roll property tax, where there's a sentiment that, Oh my God, there was this unfair relationship that happened in 1978. You know, and my argument has always been, it's like getting in a fight with your ex-wife. It's over. Forget about it. 
because <laughs> and the reality is i and i've told this and i you know on the split roll stuff that people like you guys are dumber than a box of rocks why would you do this i have been you, i i and i'll tell you why because well, they didn't listen to you well, no, they didn't. Yeah, maybe not. I guess that's true. But my, my theory was, and I was not shy of saying it, look, what's your deliverable? Your deliverable is to try to raise revenue. You want to raise revenue from a growing industry and a growing place to get money. If you look at the literature, even before the pandemic, uh, the real estate requirements were down by 25%. You still have, you know, Irvine Company and those guys who were, the, you know, the class A, super class A buildings and things like that. But it's, it's down dramatically. So you're not, I didn't think that it was an area of growth. You know, more and more people, I talked to some friends at City who were reducing their footprints by 40%. People are going to the, you know, Bloomberg bullprint approach and 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 less and less space. And now I would argue that's even more challenging given COVID and more people working from home. So I said, look, I'm with you in terms of you want to get revenue, but get it from a place. And then the second thing, of course, is it's pass-throughs. You know, everybody's got a triple net or a pass-through on their lease. And so it's you're not getting the big guys. You're hurting the, the little guy who's you're exactly trying to protect. I have been pushing for service tax now. You know, you guys, your real estate guys are out of it. Your, your broker guys are out of it. But the idea behind a service tax is consumption tax. And that and that um, uh, it could, it grows. We're having a service economy that's growing dramatically. I've been working on this, this approach for more than for more than. I think 12 years now of really doing the homework, meeting with everybody around the state, you know, 49 other states have service tax. And the idea behind it is, is that if you're in state, let's assume you're Gensler and you're downtown LA and you're working on a project for Vincent Lowe in, in Shenzhen D China, which I know they're doing. And there's no service tax because the consumption is occurring in China. But if you're a law firm and you want to come to LA and compete with Gibson Dunn or Latham and Watkins, you're going to pay your fair share of whatever the obligations of getting the benefit of that business. So you're taxing people in the out of state. And, and the idea, it was only for B2B, so it's deductible. So if I'm a subcontractor or something like that, almost like what you get in a, in a, in a resale permit or sales tax, and it grows and it, it's much more intelligent. And I, I felt that, that was a much better way to go in terms of where the growth of the economy was, the shifting of the economy, rather than looking backwards and trying to deal with with this issue of split roll, which ultimately doesn't solve any problems because um, uh, uh, it's just a pass through anyway. It hurts a little guy. So where do you think the lawyer community, the legal community will be on this? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the lawyer, the lawyers community stayed away because the law, big law firms don't want to get their big clients who are in the real estate business upset, whether they're the owners of, you know, whether it's Dick Zyman, who's, uh, you know, in, in the mm-hmm. industrial stuff and used yep. to be commercial stuff or the great Dickie Z. We love that guy. And, um, you, you know, the, the, I, I just don't see it in the real estate people. And I just, you know, to me, there's, if you're going to create revenue, which I'll talk about the book in a minute later, yep, yep, we will. talk about revenue, do it in a way where, where things are growing. Why do you want to build a business model for government around something that's shrinking, build a business model for government that's something that's growing? Well, that gets into a philosophical question, question of, are we trying to grow government? Are we trying to grow the economy? Are we trying to do both? Um, but we can get into that a little bit. I know you have a book, but I want to ask you something because I know you're a policy guy. Um, and what what is, what is the biggest issue facing California? Is it energy or the taxes, water, the supply chain crisis, all of the above? I know it's a big question and we don't have all day, but um, what are your thoughts on it? I don't think it's any of those things. I think those those are all solved if you have a system that can solve them. 
You, you know, I mean, the test is each one of these things is solvable, but if the system is so broken that you can't solve any of them, it doesn't matter whether it's a supply chain problem or a tax or whatever the problem is. And that's really the purpose of my book. I actually have two books that, that, that I've gotten. But in essence, the message is the system is failing. Uh, this, you know, whether what's happening in Washington, where they're trying to get stuff done, it's just gridlock. Or the fact that so many interest groups are you, you, you play the interest groups rather than to the larger term term deal. I'm worried. My, my basic premise is the following, which is in the book, which is the answer to this question. The rich poor divide is killing us. And the reason it's killing us is because it's polarizing us in a way that is not productive. And, you know, in government, everything is about confidence in government. One of the sidekicks of being bipartisan, not because it's just the right thing to do and I enjoy it, but when you're not fighting all the time, people have confidence. When they have confidence, they'll vote for a bond issue or they'll vote for something to try to fix stuff. When they think that we're all a bunch of bozos, everybody wants to throw everybody out and nothing works. So confidence in government, confidence in systemic governance. Uh, that's what I used to work with Nicholas Perdue on, governance. And so the idea is, you know, what's going to happen is whether it's split roll property tax or wealth tax or increasing the income tax, what, what ends up happening is that rich people are so rich, poor people are saying, oh, my God, we're in this terrible shape. They get, you know, more elected people get in office and they say, let's get money out of the rich people to be able to just um, uh, fund the social safety net and all the things that we want to do. And in a state, it's different than the federal government because people can just leave and spend 179 days in California, you know, and go to another jurisdiction, in which they're doing at some level. We're doing the analysis to figure out how deep that is. I don't know the answer to that question, but it's not good. So what you want to do is you want to restructure the system in a way that aligns interests. That I, that's a concept which I got from Eric Schmidt of Google, and I think he's right. Aligning interests. That's the way you always make any kind of deal align interests. And so what I'm focusing on is creating a sovereign wealth fund and so that rich people are rich because they live off of their money. Poor people are poor because they live off the sweat of their brow and they every day their checks got to go pay for food and rent and new pair of sneakers for their kids. So if we could create a series, a, a process, which we do here, and I actually wrote an op-ed piece with with uh, Eric Schmidt of, of Google and uh, Evan Spiegel of Snapchat uh, and the LA Times some months ago about moving toward this business model. And there's a number of different ways to fund it so that there's less pressure on just more and more taxes and, and, and creates the necessary money to pay for the social safety net and all of the necessary things that inform the social contract and that are necessary for us. Once you have that stability, I'm sorry for the long answer, but it's really important. Once you have that stability, then you can attack all the other issues that we need to attack. But what ends up happening in government is because people are pissed off and often for right reasons, you get irrational conduct and you get everybody just amping up the, the screaming at each other and you're bad and you're bad and you're bad. You've got to create a, a household where you take the decibels out of the household and get people in a place where we're being productive. If you look at what happens as to the last president and why he got elected, so many of those people had been with, had voted for the other party and they got pissed off because they got tired of the BS. They got tired of them not getting thrown on their jobs. They get tired of being told what to do. And and it's it 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 the, the, the his party has fundamentally changed. It's become the middle finger party, which I talk about in my book. And 
because they're just pissed off. They lost their houses in 2008 and they got jammed up by the system. And now they've got a guy, irrespective of party, who's just willing to, to, to stick his finger out in the, into the system because that's what they feel like. And I don't blame them. I'm not suggesting a solution's correct, but you've got to start out just like when you walk home to your spouse or whatever it may be. It's all about where people's heads are at and you got to take care of them. And that's the mistake in government. And all these other things are solvable in an instant. Last thing, L.A. County and city passed these big taxes and bonds for homeless. Why? People knew homeless was a problem. And so they're willing to write a check for it. What happens? They spend all the money. Now nothing, they feel it's getting worse. Now they're really pissed off. They were willing to write the check. It's like, but the, the second side of that contract is, I'm going to give you a check, but you better fix the problem. Yeah. You know, and we ain't fixing the problem. And guess what? You know, they'd throw us all out of office today if they could. And, so, and Senator, I, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I play, play, just playing just general devil's advocate, you said you wrote an op-ed with Eric Schmidt. He's obviously someone of tremendous means. Is he the right person to be speaking out on this issue? Sure. It's, it's part of the larger... Yeah, sure, because he's the one who wants to... Him and, and as, as is uh, uh, Evan Spiegel from Snapchat, yeah, of course they are, because they've got resources. They can, can, they can persuade you know, all the people that they work with to try to change up the game. Absolutely, the fact that they want to be in the game and talking about this, of course. Now, do you, you have one book or two books? You two. What? Okay, go ahead. Let's give a plug. What? What? What are the names of the books? Well, it does, there's no. I get no money on anything. <laughs> I know it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, but, I understand. The, the The first one is called Working Close. W R K I N Close. It comes from a quote by Henry Kaiser. Says, "Problems are nothing more than opportunities in working clothes." It's 29 years. Looks back 29 years and has 29 years of my op eds that I've written. And basic message is this. It took 40 times for the Civil Rights Act. People in Silicon to pass. The, it, the people in Silicon Valley work in two-story buildings. So when they jump out the window and they fail, they only sprain an ankle. The message is to the next generation of politicians that says, don't get out there and introduce a bill and think you're going to cure cancer and make you skinny act and think you've ruled the world. It takes a long time. And so what happens is it's a bunch of op-eds that I wrote. The first half of the book are op-eds where I was successful. It's got like a section on, say, term limits or 50% one on the budget or a rainy day fund where I'd written a bunch of op-eds on it over many years trying to persuade people and talks about the history of it that were successful. Second half of the book are ideas that were pretty crappy that I screwed up on or haven't happened yet because you got to show failure if you're going to show success to inspire people. Everybody's not magic that you're going to work it. The message is go try it. And don't so worry about risk. And that goes back 29 years. The other book is called Course Correction, which I'm hoping to get. I'm, I'm in final edits. I'm just about to talk to the editor later today called Course Correction, Restoring the Social Contract in California. And that looks forward 29 years. And the basic message behind that is I suggested is we have to re-engineer governance to align interest in a way to make it work. And so I look at, at how do you fund government? You got to change that. Otherwise, we're going to continue to have this tension, which is killing us, and, and polarization, which is happening because of uh, the, the, you know, the, what's his face, the internet. And I look at the individual and how to, how to give them some confidence because they're not so nervous. When people are nervous and worried, they act irrationally. When they're comfortable and their bellies are full and they feel good about their life and their future and their kids, that's our job in the social contract. And I look at colleges and how to fund those in a way without a bunch more tax dollars. So 
So look, at the end of the book, it's like, okay, I'm sick and tired of all these political books where everybody just tells you about all the problems. My job is I, I live in the belly of the beast. I know how to fix stuff. Here's a bunch of solutions. If you don't like it, you come up with a solution. But at least we change the discussion to try to think through how to fix stuff rather than just at each other's throats of uh, of you're bad and blah 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 blah. Do you think people are listening? Do you think? Do you think? Do you think? Do you think this will have? This can change things. I don't know. I honestly don't know. But I, I felt like I had to do it. But what do you? Ca- years I've been involved. I, I I wanted to say it. I, I'm not writing a book about my life and my all the inside stories that are fun and all the secrets that I've learned uh, that I can't tell anybody. I'm still a lawyer. I believe in confidentiality, but, <laughs> but a lot of the good stories. Let me tell you, man, I got a lot of good stories. Oh yeah. Well, that's the next podcast, no, but you, no, you're no, not going to do it. No stories. No, I don't tell stories. Uh, but, but the point is, I know it's you don't kiss and tell. Those are a lot of books that come out, especially you see it in Washington, you know, they spent a year or two in the administration that's and then the amateur hour. It is. Amateur hour. What do you consider your greatest accomplishment? My, you know, you said everybody else, your kids, you know, I got, my son's going to succeed me. Hopefully if we win in the Senate seat, my other son is a international classical music composer. You know, I, I, I just, I think that it's not any individual thing like passing something or working on this issue or that issue. It's about trying to train other people and trying to have the guts to go for it on the big stuff. You know what I mean? And, and get in the game, get in the arena. Too many people are critics on the outside. I got in the arena. Did I win some? Yeah. Did I lose some? Yeah. But man, I didn't let any, I, and when I, you know, I worked like a son of a ton of a gun, told the truth, made some mistakes along the way. No question. Uh, a lot of them, but you get in the arena, man, to everybody. It's the same thing when you say, why'd you get back into government? I got in the arena. You know, I, I just think the other stuff on money and all this other stuff is small ball. Live large, man, go big, <laughs> do big stuff in your life. Get out of, get out of your chair and roll and, you know, get beat up a few times and get back in the arena. That's, that's what I did. That to me is a success. I I've lived it and I have never shied away from it. You know, I've made some mistakes. I got ran for mayor of Los Angeles. I lost by a very small margin, but I did it. Get yeah. in the arena. That's what I did. That's the accomplishment. The accomplishment is the, is the journey, not the, not whether or not you're successful each time. Yeah. Right on. Well, you said mentioned your son's running. Um, what advice do you give him? Is he gonna is he gonna follow in the footsteps of the in the arena mix it up Bob Hertzberg or he better <laughs> he he's like he's telling me like when he goes and talks to people he goes you have any idea what it's like being that guy's son you know I I think he's look he's young he's a different generation he thinks differently than I do. is he on social media no he's not a big social media guy at all okay not at all. Not at all. He's not into that stuff, but he's, he's very creative. And, but I think he's look the thing that you in this business, but I think is important for anybody on this podcast who's listening when you interface with politicians is not to be so bullheaded. You think you got all the answers to listen deeply, to ask a lot of questions. He goes and meets with people. He pulls out a legal, pulls out a pad, takes notes, asks questions, is inquisitive. Isn't somebody that says, Oh, you come from this group over here. I'm not going to talk to you, which is kind of the game that gets played in this Twitter politics. Oh my God, you can't talk to those people. Oh God, you can't entertain their ideas, whether it's Republicans or some unwoke interest group or whatever the case may be. To me, the most woke person is the person who's tolerant, who listens, who engaged. And so I think he has those characteristics of curiosity, uh, of uh, willingness to listen and, and, and to, 
to not be so judgmental, although he defines himself as a progressive, which he is, but he's, he's a listener. And he's a, he's a, and, and the last thing I would say is homework, 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 work, 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 work. Every time he comes to my house, he leaves stealing five books because he reads like crazy and studies and does the homework. So do the homework, listen, be great. And, and the other thing is being the son of someone like me, don't be an arrogant punk putzberger, be gracious, you know, go overboard with people, treat them with this decency and don't act like you think you're important because you're not. Amen to that. Well, final question. I understand, you know, you, you know, your son's running, this will be your last year in the Senate, uh, in the state Senate. So what's next for Bob Hertzberg? Something big. I don't know, whatever it is. I'll tell you this much. It's going to be good. It's going to be fun. And, Fasten your seatbelt. So I don't know yet, but you know, do I run for? You don't want to break news today with the Neap SoCal podcast. <laughs> okay, I'm running for president of the United States. No, joke. <laughs> but the, the point is, the point is that that I don't. Know, I might stay in politics. I don't know yet. Right now, I'm getting him off his ground. The district lines and all the maps are being drawn. I have enough relationships everywhere that people know who I am and what I'm about. I'll make a decision by the end of the year. And if I don't run, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. But I got over a hundred job offers when I left the speakership. I'm a pretty commercial guy. I, 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 you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't want to go back to Washington and be in government and take orders from other people. That's not my MO. That's not what I want to do, but I'll do something fun in the commercial sector, in the legal sector, something, you know what I mean? Well, stay in touch with us. We, we, Absolutely. I, I know that the listeners will be eager to see what your next move is. You've got still another year to make an impact. And I just want to thank you, Senator Hertzberg for, talking to us today. I want to remind the audience, we've been talking to Senator Bob Hertzberg. I'm Tim Jamal, CEO of NAP SoCal. Senator, it was a pleasure to speak with you today. Appreciate it very much. Mm-hmm.